listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. As we look at prayer, how many of you are at least a little guilty about how much time you spend in prayer? Show of hands. Yeah, all right. So it seems like we picked a good topic, right? And the reason we did this is actually because for, um, for decades, even a couple of centuries, different churches have started the year with a series on prayer. And so this is nothing novel. We've done this in the past. And Jonathan Edwards has traditionally, he traditionally did this. He's not with us any longer on this world, uh, but he traditionally did this with his church and other churches have. And so we want to follow in those footsteps as well. But here's the thing, as I even ask that question, how many of us feel guilty, um, I have to admit, I feel, I feel incredibly guilty about my time in prayer also. And so I've mentioned that in my life group this past week. They were asking a few things about the prayer series. And uh, I, I said, I said, my prayer life stinks. And it's like, well, maybe it's not as good as Jonathan Edwards or as Martin Luther, you know, Martin Luther's or something like that. And I'm like, no, just in general, probably compared to the people in our church, my prayer life stinks. And so I feel incredibly inadequate to come before you this morning and say, here's how we should pray. But here's my request of you this morning. I want us together to be growing in lives of prayer. And in fact, when I said it to my life group, somebody said, well, that's okay because in our weakness, he is made strong. I said, don't bring the Bible into this. You know, not really. But that show of hands, we are incredibly weak. I am incredibly weak as a leader. And so just the past, the past week in getting ready for this, I prayed probably more this past week than I have in years. And I don't say that, say, hey, well, but I, as I begin studying for this, I see the incredible necessity of prayer. And we all know the necessity of prayer. And so it's not for lack of information that we pray, but it's for lack of transformation inside of our lives that we don't. And so I would simply invite you, the next several weeks, uh, I'm gonna be sharing some things with you that have been in, incredibly pertinent to me from the word of God. Um, and so this morning, we're gonna set this up and it's gonna be a little bit like going to the doctor and getting a diagnosis for what ails you. I'm not gonna give you tips and tricks for how you pray and then boom, you're gonna walk out of here and it's like, man, I can't wait to get home and pray. I'm simply inviting you to say, let's spend more time with the Father, increasing our knowledge of him, experiencing love from him, from him. But a couple of questions before we start, and I'd, I'd like for you to respond to these questions if you would, but the first question is this, why should we pray? Anybody, why should we pray? Because we're told to, but we're told to, we don't do it, right? You know, so that's, that's the difficult part, you know? But we need it, yeah. We're told to, we need it, yeah. Why else should we pray? To keep up the relationship, yeah. Because we get to, one at a time. I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Ryan. For God's kingdom to come. Yeah, Matthew 6. Because we can. Strength. Yeah. Did I miss one? Yeah. So we know that we should, and these are all great reasons. Second question I want us to answer is this. Why don't we pray? 
We don't know how. We think we don't know how, yeah. Why do other people not pray? We'll ask it that way. Not, let's not make it too personal, okay? Why don't other people pray? Caught up in the busyness of the day. We think we're in control. Yeah. We think it doesn't matter. Yeah, we don't understand the importance of prayer. Satan distracts us from it, yeah. We don't want God. We're afraid of what we might find out. We're afraid of what the answer might be, yeah. I think these are all true. We could probably keep going around the room. Like, I, I would imagine almost everybody has an answer. If you didn't, it's like, you know, the unspoken prayer request. Yep, I got, I've got one right here too. I don't want to say it, but everybody's pretty much got one. Here's what I think is crazy. Uh, this is a Gallup poll, so um, fairly reliable. Uh, a Gallup poll said this recently. It said that more Americans on a weekly basis will pray than will drive a car, go to work, or even be intimate with their partner. That's a lot of people praying. If there's something, and like Caleb just prayed, there's something just about life we know that we should. If you look at every single belief system, every single faith system in the world, almost all of them, if not all of them, believe in some sort of prayer. And a lot of times, sorry Christians, but a lot of times even more so than we do, right? Because Muslims will take their rug out and they'll pray several times a day. Buddhists, they don't just um, believe in praying just into nothing. They want to pray until they empty themselves completely. Jews will go to the wailing wall and take their prayers and put them there into the wall. Hindus do something very similar. They take their prayer and write them down, then put them into this wheel that's creating smoke up to the different gods. Even atheists, if you cornered them in a hospital room, what are they gonna do? Would you please pray for this person who is sick? Please pray for healing, pray for life. I listened to a talk show host, his name is Colin Cowherd, uh, Sports Talk Radio, and he even this past week on Tuesday morning, so uh, the tragedy that happened uh, to DeMar Hamlin on Monday night, Monday Night Football, you probably saw this. He went into cardiac arrest. All the players were freaking out. Hopefully you've seen that or you know about that. Uh, Tuesday morning, uh, Colin's show, he starts with his, his introduction and he goes through talking about that situation and he finished his, um, his opening rant with, we just need to pray. And then boom, went to commercial. Here's what's crazy is even Colin Cowherd is an avowed agnostic. And so my question is, I was saying, I said, who are we praying to, <laughs> you know? But we believe that we should. There's something in us. There's got to be something up there. We know that we need to, and we know that we don't. My hope for this series, my plan for this series is not for us to have um, better tips and tricks and practices, but my hope for this series is that we would experience the presence and power of God through prayer. That's it. It's going to be real simple stuff. But as we do, let's make this our prayer from Psalm chapter 119. If you would repeat these words after me, may this be our prayer this morning. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Yeah, amen.
Here's the first thing that I want us to see this morning. If you walk away with nothing else, I want you to write this down, take a picture of it, something like that. I'm gonna have a ton of stuff on the screen. If you wanna take pictures, you can. If you want my notes, I've got a copy down here on the front row. You can have those. I can uh, text them or email them to you. But here's what I want us to see first and foremost is the most important work and great scandal of prayer is simply letting ourselves be loved by God. The most important work and great scandal of prayer is letting ourselves be loved by God. I can't prove that to you this morning, but we know it to be true since we don't pray and we know that we should. Here's a, here's a third question I want you to answer for me, with me this morning. What has been the biggest hindrance in your life for spiritual growth? And we mentioned some of these things before, why don't we pray? But what has been the biggest hindrance for growth in your spiritual life? Anybody? Myself, lack of prayer. Hey, he gets a gold star. Okay, what else? Health issues. Distractions. Did somebody say something? To-do list, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, absolutely other people. It's not my fault. I'm with you, Will. Kids? Yeah. Shame. Unbelief. Anxiety. I would like to posit to you this morning, and even Sarah a few minutes ago, she said, hurry, right? Just a busy life. Most of these things flow from a busy life. And I would like to make the case that the biggest hindrance in your life for spiritual growth has by and large been hurry. It's by and large because we are too busy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he said, patience, patience, you are always in a hurry, but God is not. Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great spiritual threat of the spiritual life. And here's, I want to historically look, and I'm, I'm setting, us, setting us up this morning. So the next several weeks, we're going to dig in and look uh, at, some, at several specific scriptures and, and spend some time praying through those. And we're going to look at some in just a few moments, but I want to set us up with this diagnosis. But if we look back historically, the first thing that we know that has increased our uh, capacity or propensity for hurry is the invention of the clock, Okay. So for us, we're like, oh yeah, well, it just makes sense that we just, we live our lives by that, but no one lived their life by that until 1370. It was invented in Germany. So prior to 1370, time was something that governed our lives. We, we, were, we were slave to the sun and to the moon, and then we had to go to bed. But now time is seen as a resource for my personal agenda, our personal to-do list, Right. Secondly, uh, the light bulb was invented in 1879. Thomas Edison invented that. From there, which is great, I, I love electricity. It's fantastic. I'm not knocking the clock or the light bulb, but we just have to know where we've come from. We need to understand why we are here, how we got to this place of hurry and to this place of busy. Once the light bulb was invented, Americans went from sleeping an average of 10 hours a night, an average of 10 hours a night, to now 
2023, we sleep an average of less than seven hours a night because we're so busy. In, in fact, uh, in 1960, by 1960, the American, the average American home had a dishwasher, it had a microwave, it had electricity, it had all of these functions to make life easier. And in 1967, uh, a joint Senate uh, assembly, here's what they predicted. They said that by 1985, now this is not ancient history, okay? Several people in here were born 1967, okay? It's not, it's not crazy. And if you weren't, then your parents probably were, okay, by then, except for you, Axel. Um, so uh, they, they predicted that by 1985, I was born by then, that by 1985, the average American would work 22 weeks out of the year. That's it. Because of modern technology, because of electricity. And they said that the average work week would be 27 hours a week. Yeah. And the reason for that is because they thought, man, we have all of this free time and now we're adding technology. It's going to make life more and more simple. But in 2021, sociologists actually discovered that we have less free time than ever before. So we have all of this technology and we have all of this capacity for rest and we fill it up with something else. 2007, the iPhone is introduced. It's created by Apple. Again, I've got Apple in my pocket. I'm not knocking it. It's great. It's amazing. A study came out last month, December of 2022. The average iPhone user, age 16 to 64, spends upwards of seven hours, average, seven hours a day looking at their iPhone screen. That doesn't include television, iPad, any other, doesn't include all of those. Simply their iPhone screen, seven hours a day, doing really important stuff. Um, like scrolling social media, getting into political arguments on Twitter, looking for recipes on Pinterest. Again, all finding good stuff, seven hours a day. We've run into what economists have now labeled attention economics. So once the iPhone became popular, once smartphones became popular, today 85% of Americans own smartphones, 97% of Americans own a cell phone in general. Now that 85% of us own smartphones, here's what... Uh, economists, here's what companies and programmers began to realize, is that they could commodify your time. They could take your attention and make money off of it. So now the games that you play on your phone, they have figured out, according to these algorithms, exactly at what point you're going to give up on that game. How many minutes or how many times you're going to play that level. So guess what happens in Angry Birds? You can go look at the study on this. In Angry Birds, right before you're about to quit, because they know when you're going to. Right before then, all of a sudden, you win that level. So what do you have to do? Go to the next one. We see this with our ads. If I mention something to my wife, I'm like, man, I'm looking for uh, just an awesome pair of boots. Guess what I'm going to see next time I open up my phone? Boots. Awesome pair of boots. If I'm scrolling and the algorithm knows, hey, he's about to be done scrolling, guess what I'm about to see? Someone tagging me in a post probably about boots. You're going to see that, Right? Because your attention is for sale. That's why your phone is always screaming at you. Even for some of you now, you're like, I just I can't put it away. Some of y'all are like, okay, all right, I will, I will. I saw that. You left your screen on, I can see, all right. You go to the bathroom, your phone's screaming at you. At a red light, I gotta see if anybody texted me. I got to see if my company is burning to the ground. 
You're like, man, you sound crazy. Do I? Is this crazy? Am I crazy <laughs> for saying this? No, we're all crazy. We're all in this. We're all crazy. Today we have what uh, mental health professionals say we suffer from hurry sickness. Hurry sickness, a self-diagnosable sickness. The definition is a person feels chronically short of time and tends to perform every task faster and becomes flustered when they experience any type of delay. Anybody here want to be self-diagnosed? I'll tell you what, spouse diagnosed with hurry sickness? A lot of us could be. And here's the thing. If you were to ask somebody, hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm good, except I'm just busy. I talked to about 20 of y'all this morning. Guess how many of y'all said that? 19, okay? Not, I didn't really keep count. But for most of us, that's how we go through life. We go through life busy. Here's what Bill Gates said recently. He said, busy is the new I can't say it. Shannon said, you can't, you got to change that word. I said, Bill Gates said it, not me, okay? Uh, here's what a New York Times article recently said just a couple of years ago. It said, atheism is the religion of the busy. Atheism is the religion of the busy. Busy is not about having things to do. I think we can make the case that Jesus was busy. Hurry is the sense where we have too much to do in the time allotted to do those things. So when we talk about hurry sickness, this busy is not like, hey, my life is filled with all of these things. What we're talking about is having too much to do to the point where we have to speed up life, tasks, our mind, our body, where we have to speed up relationships, both with God and with others. A life that has sped up relationships is incompatible with life in the kingdom because it is not the way that we were designed. Ruth Haley Barton, uh, an author, she actually has these 10 ways. Here are 10 signs that you are too busy. Let's see how you grade. Irritability, you take offense easily whether you know the person or not. Secondly, hypersensitivity. If you're sitting here thinking, I can't believe he's saying that, that might be you, I don't know. <laughs> Number three, restlessness. You can't relax, you can't calm down. When you go to bed at night, hey, right here, you've got to listen to something to be able to sleep. You've got to drink something to be able to go to sleep. You need some sort of medication to be able to rest and to relax. To be able to simply sit and watch football or uh, your, your kid's game or to play with your kids. You've got to have something going on, something in the background. Number four, compulsive overworking. You've got to have your laptop out. Hey, let me, just go, let me just go check real quick. Let me just go do this. Let me just go make sure everything's okay. I don't know what else to do with my time, so I've got to go check and make sure work is going okay. Number five, emotional numbness. Oftentimes, this leads to ending up with two emotions. This is what Keith Keller told me just over a year ago. He said, you have two emotions. One is anger and one is anxiety. That's it. Nothing in between. No compassion, no love. No mercy, no rest, no peace. Number six, you have escapist behaviors. These could be good things or bad things. Now, I don't think there's anything essentially wrong with watching football. But if that's all you want to do to get away, if you want to watch Netflix or whatever it is just to simply get away, then that means you're too big. You can't 
shut down. There's something emotionally happening that's wrong with you. You need that to be able to relax. Maybe something that's bad, maybe you do need something to drink. You need some sort of drug. Maybe you have to look at something to be able to find some sort of rest or relaxation. Number seven, you're disconnected from your identity or from your calling. This could be spiritually, it could be with your family, it could be your relationship with God. Number eight, you're not, a, you're not able to attend to basic needs like sleep, like drinking enough water, like eating the right kinds of food. You just got to keep going, got to maintain, got to drink more caffeine. Number nine, you're hoarding energy. You, you ever, you're sitting face to face with someone, I do this. You're sitting face to face with someone and you think, man, I've got a long day tomorrow or I've got to do this tomorrow. I don't want to expend my emotional energy with this person right now. I've got to save it for tomorrow. The reason is often because we're going home and we're watching something until the wee hours of the morning because we can't go to rest. We can't, go, we can't rest without watching that. Then we wake up exhausted. We're exhausting ourselves. Lastly, slippage in spiritual practices. How did everyone score? You're like, I don't know, what do I say, high? Is that good? <laughs> is low good? I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know. I know for me, as I read through this list, it's like, man, there are a lot of things on here that push my life. Hurry is not uh, an occasional necessity anymore. Hurry is the new normal, right? Hurry is the new normal. If we were to poll spiritual leaders, pastors, seminary professors, and ask them some of these questions, what's the biggest hindrance to spiritual growth? I doubt many of them would say hurry. But hopefully this morning we would say, yeah, I'm filling my life with all of these other things. Here are a few more quotes for you. Uh, Carl Jung, he said uh, he's responsible for the Myers-Briggs. Um, his research um, led to that personality test. He said, hurry is not, by the way, I'm not endorsing all of these people. I don't think Bill Gates is a great theologian, so don't at me, all right? Carl Jung said, hurry is not of the devil. It is the devil. Thomas Merton he said, the leading spiritual disease of our time is efficiency. W.F. Adams, who was the spiritual advisor for C.S. Lewis, he said, hurry is the death of prayer. And then lastly, Andrew Sullivan, um, an English philosopher, writer, he said, the great threat to the church in the West is not hedonism, which is living a life just full of pleasure, but hurry. The great threat to the church is hurry. See, we think, we think that our inner lives are a mirror reflection of our environment. So if I can change my environment, then I can change my inner life. But friend, listen, it's the exact opposite. Your environment, the way that you live, the way that you function, the way that you hurry is a reflection of your inner life. And here's how that happens. It's, it's this... Um, it's this crazy cycle. We, we begin to adopt the ways of the culture, the ways of being overtasked, overworked, of hurrying, of moving at this frenetic pace. And what happens is because of that, we take, our, we take God from the centrality of our lives and move him to the periphery, to the edge of our lives. So now our relationship with God begins to deteriorate. Once our relationship with God begins to deteriorate, we become vulnerable to the values and to the lessons that our culture is teaching us that are depraving us from being connected with God. 
And as a result of adopting and adapting those practices and those values, those idols, then we begin to further adopt what the culture says is priority number one, which is success, which is never stopping, keep moving. And then the cycle starts back over again. Anybody else there? It's easy for us to be there, for us to always be in a hurry. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look at Psalm chapter 46. I've got this up on the screen if, uh, if you don't have the word of God here with you this morning, but Psalm chapter 46. And I want us to camp out here just for a moment. I want you to notice how this Psalm begins and how it ends. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Before you turn that page, look at the very bottom. It says, Selah. In Hebrew, that word Selah means stop, rest. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. Verse four, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. He finishes, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Here's the key verse right here, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. We think that if we can keep moving and keep the appearance of momentum, that we are being successful, that we don't have to stop and either listen to ourselves, listen to others, or listen to the voice of God. We want to never stop moving. And here's why. Because the enemy promises that we can be like God. We can be in control of our lives. So what do we do? We try to maintain that control as much as we possibly can because I'm a person without limitations. You can do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. Don't stop. Just keep pursuing that. Is that what the word of God says right here? He says, be still. Friend, you may be deceiving others. They may think that you have it all together, even in your spiritual life. You may even, friend, be deceiving yourself in thinking that you're okay. But unless you are adhering to this right here, be still then you are falling for a lie of the devil. And I would implore you, 
Don't listen to the enemy. Listen to the voice of God. Be still. When this was translated into the Latin, this word, this phrase was actually translated vacate, which is where we get the word for vacation. Now, some of y'all are like, hey, when I go on vacation, I only work six hours a day, as if it's a badge of honor. Like, congratulations. I don't think you understand what it means to be still. I don't think you understand what he's talking about here. To vacate, to be still means let me be without control over my life, even for a moment. Let me be reminded that I am not sovereign over all things. Let me be reminded of that, that things need to return to their created order. Now, the solution to our problem is not more time. Because for many of us, we would say, okay, well, what we need then, uh, Michael, is we just need more time, right? I mean, if I only had 30 hours in the day. You know, let me tell you what would happen if we had 30 hours in the day. And you know this to be true. We would fill that up with even more things to do. The reason you say, man, I wish I had more time in the day so I could fill in the blank, it's not so that I could rest more, so that I could be rejuvenated, so that I could spend time with God. No, no, it's so that I could get more things on my to-do list done, so that I could be even more tired and more expended, right? So our solution is not more time. Our lives are built on a liturgy. Our lives are built on a trellis. If you go back here and ask Walton what a trellis is, uh, it's a fence-looking thing so that the vine can grow on it, so that there can be life. Our lives have some particular rhythm about them. The solution to this problem of hurry, to this lack of being still, the solution is centering our lives on our relationship with God. We are not going to fall into prayer. We are not going to fall into spiritual health on accident. It's not simply going to happen. Philippians chapter four, go there with me if you would. Look at a few verses here in Philippians four. I want to look at the very end of verse number five. Again, this will be on the screen for you. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi and he's ending his letter with this. The very end of verse number five, he begins with, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, most often this passage is referred or given to someone who's dealing with anxiety. Hey, all you need to do is pray your anxiety away. Am I right? Anybody else heard that? Anxious people in the room? That's what this passage is for. But notice how it actually begins. It begins with the Lord is at hand. The basis of our prayer, the basis of our peace is the presence of God. It's the presence of God. The, the deep fear that robs our prayers of power and presence is the fear that God doesn't know me. God doesn't have my world in control. He doesn't know what's about to happen to me. But friend, Paul says, the Lord is at hand. It's, it reminds me when Jesus, when he goes in to clear the, the, to clear the temple out of 
uh, these folks who were selling things in the temple. He goes in there with, with a whip and you're like, wait, is this like the, you know, the hippie version of Jesus that I knew who was like walking around like hanging out with John the Baptist eating you know, animals and bugs and stuff? He goes in there, this is full-blooded Jesus. He goes in there and starts whipping folks, kicking over tables. And what does he say? My father's house will not be turned into a den of robbers, right? What was the temple in that day? It represented the literal presence of God. Jesus recognized that the literal presence of God the Father was his home. He said, this is my Father's house. Here I am at home. So here's my question, my last question for you this morning. You don't have to answer this out loud. But when you utter the words, dear God, when you come to him in prayer, what's the expression on his face? What do you think is going through the mind of God when you begin that time in prayer? Dear God, what's his mood like? For some of us, we, we come to God, hey, dear God, I don't, I don't wanna bother you. D dear God, I, I know I haven't really talked to you in a while. Dear God, I, I know you're real busy, but, but, or is it, this is my father's house. I am home in the presence of God. I know if I go to my parents' house, uh, and you still have to go pick up their mail or if they were on vacation, I would, you know, go over there, move their trash can to the road or something and go inside and check on whatever it is. If I ever go to my parents' house, even if they're there or if they're not, what I always do is I always go to the refrigerator to check and see if there are any snacks or like chocolate milk. I look on top of the fridge for fruit snacks. I look for anything. Do my mom just make some cookies? Whatever it is. The reason, for, and I, I would probably do the same thing at your house, but um, I'm not 100% guaranteed. In fact, I have. You just don't know about it. Um, but... Whenever I go to my parents' house, I feel at home. I feel the freedom to go raid their pantry, to go raid the refrigerator because I am at home. The Lord is near. That's our assurance that our prayers can be filled with power and with the presence of God. The Lord is near. Here's the second big thing that I want us to walk away with this morning. The most important discovery you will ever make is the love that the Father has for you. We talked about the, the, the scandal of prayer is the same idea. The most important discovery you will ever make is the love that the Father has for you. And friend, I can't just, this is not something that we can learn. We can't just learn this. This must be experienced and discovered. And then everything else in life will flow from this discovery. I can tell you, we could look it up. I probably did a report on it when I was a kid. I could tell you all about the moon. I could tell you about how it turns and I could talk about what Pink Floyd taught me about the dark side of the moon. And I could, and we could talk about the craters and the distance and how it reflects the sun and the different, you know, waxing and waning and all these different things. But Neil Armstrong is the one who discovered the moon. You're like, well, actually, we are, you know, back in, I don't know. Yeah. He walked on it. He discovered it. He said, boom, it's here. I can feel it with my feet. 
Some of you are like, actually, we've never been to the, that's fine, okay? Just, uh, you can send me an email at uh, I don't care at southpoint.org. Um, discovery requires personal experience. And the Lord is near. You can go to a restaurant and ask uh, the server or waiter, I don't know what the uh, PC term is anymore, but you can ask the person who brings the food to you and you can say, hey, what do you recommend on the menu? And they can tell you about the most delicious course, but until you take your fork and your knife and you cut it and you put it into your mouth, at that point, you've experienced, you've discovered what was only hearsay beforehand. You can watch every single rom-com there is you can watch every single Hallmark special, every single one. You can go to a restaurant and eavesdrop on every single first date that you want to. You can even go to a wedding and occasionally shed a tear. But until you find that significant other and you get those butterflies in your stomach when you ask them out and when you hold their hand for the first time and when you take that leap of faith and you say, I love you, and then you ask them to marry you, and then you commit yourself with vows in front of other people. And then at the end of life, you're holding those wrinkly hands together as you're, you know, walking um, around the shopping center, getting your steps in or whatever you do. Until you go through that with that person, it's not enough to simply watch all of the rom-coms and eavesdrop on love conversations and go to weddings and say, I know what true love is. True love must be experienced and in the same way, prayer must be discovered for yourself. You can't take my word for it. Prayer is learned by discovery. John Orberg says this, to choose to live an unhurried life in our day is like choosing a vow of poverty in the past. That's pretty wild. Some of you are like, oh, I could take a vow. Can you live an unhurried life? It's scary and an act of faith but there are deeper riches on the other side. There are deeper riches on the other side of an unhurried life. Here's the third and final thing I want you to walk away with this morning, is that stillness is the quiet space where God migrates from the periphery back to the center and prayer pours forth from the life that has God at the center. He says, be still. I hate quiet. That's why Jason's playing some real sultry pads right now because I can't handle it. But what I want us to do for just a moment, I want us to spend just a, a minute in stillness. So if you would with me, here's something that's been meaningful to me. If you would just put your hands on your knees, not on your phone, nothing else. Just put your hands on your knees, palm up. As a physical demonstration of, I, I'm not bringing anything to this. I'm here to listen, to receive, to be still. And I want us to ex experience the power and the presence of God in prayer. Be still. 
we know that he is God. The beginning of Psalm chapter 46 is that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Let's just spend a few moments just in real easy, short, simple prayers. Just there in the, in the quiet of this, of this room. In your mind, in your heart, repeat these, these prayers or something similar after me, just there quietly. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Father, we know that you are faithful. In this stillness, we know that you are good. In this stillness, we remember your sacrifice. In this stillness, we reflect on your compassion. In this stillness, we let go of control. In this stillness, we know that you are with us. I'm gonna give us, just stay in that posture with your eyes closed, with your hands open. I'm gonna give us about half a minute to maybe even a minute, it may feel like a long time, just of stillness. And I want you to simply talk to the Father, listen to the Father, to what he has to say to you. Father, still our hearts our minds, our hands, our feet, our eyes, so that we could know and experience and discover afresh your mercy, your kindness, your power, your compassion. so that we could know you. That we would know that you are near. That we would know that you are God. It's through the blood of Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. The love of God, friend, is most clearly seen on the cross where Jesus suffered and died for us. His body was broken, his blood was poured out. He came down and dwelt among men so that we could continue to experience the presence of God even today, 2000 years later. And so we get the chance to celebrate a physical reminder, which is the means by which he has given us, to, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Literally do this to be reminded that I am with you. 
this is almost as close as we can get to heaven. We're reminded of his spiritual presence with us through this physical means of communion. So as we go to one of these stations around the room, I pray that we as God's people, and this is for God's people who have put faith in him. And if you haven't, I would compel you to stay there in your seat and to plead the mercy of God. But for those of us who are walking in faith, may we be repenting of hurry. And may we be reminded of home, the presence of God the Father. And may that permeate our lives. We rejoice that one day we're gonna be with him perfectly for all of eternity. And this is just a microcosm of that. This is just a small piece, this family here this morning. And so family, if you would join me this morning in celebrating what Jesus Christ has done and made available to us, you're invited to the table.